he sees us in this car. He doesn't know what's going on. We got all these white uniforms. We got all these mats, you know, in the back hitting a head. This tall blonde girl, this, you know, other girl is, does not look, you know, she looks totally American. And, you know, all he's just like, okay, they're coming over here and they're going to like do some El Chapo style smuggling and put it inside those white, whatever those white uh, robes are. When we get there, there's a village of kids waiting for us. It's like it's like 11 at night. Coach Oswaldo comes out of a hut. His mom, everybody's in traditional Guatemalan garb. The taxi driver just starts bawling. He just starts crying. All of the Americans start crying. Coach Oswaldo's mom's crying. You know, there's no there's no older men. I don't know what happened to them, but we can imagine like you know they're they're gone. Um, but there's all these women and everybody's crying and it's just crazy. And then he makes this meal for us. And I'll remember the meal, the, the ch he had chickens in the back. So his mom had taken one of the chickens, and, but it was one chicken for like five Americans and the taxi driver. So we all got like a very small portion of chicken and some rice and beans. And I remember Coach Oswaldo was really embarrassed and he said, you know, if you're hungry, there's more, Professor. And I saw him kind of pushing his plate over. And I was like, no, no, I'm so full. Oh, my gosh. You know, and we all saw what was going on. That's all they had. And, um, man, it was just like, it gives me chills to this day to think about it. But that's what IGF was all about. And that's kind of where where the whole mission started. What is up, everybody? And welcome back to the Pohada podcast. This is a show where we talk about Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well as literally anything else that comes to mind. Sometimes I'm having booze with a black belt. Sometimes I'm talking blues with a blue belt. And sometimes we take on more important topics like trauma and charitable giving. No matter what it is, it's usually an okay conversation. I am the host of the show, Matt Browse of Pohada Photography, where I take pictures of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and dogs and other stuff. If you listened to the last episode, number 43, with John Grills, you heard me thank him for his help with some editing improvements on that episode. This actually wasn't the first time this show was improved by a quick, snarky text from John, and it turns out it wouldn't be the last. So before we jump into today's conversation, a huge shout out to our newest podcast sponsor, John Grills of Creepy Pod. That's at Creepy Pod on Instagram for pushing me like any good training partner would to do better. Do swing over to Creepy Pod and check out the 31 Days of Horror to get hooked into some of his best horror story episodes. Speaking of charitable giving, my guest, as you heard there, Eric Klinger of Level Up Jiu-Jitsu, was here in Minnesota from California for the first ever iJeff Gala. We sat down after the pre-gala BJJ seminar to talk about iJeff, the International Jiu-Jitsu Education Fund, and the huge impact it's having on the lives of kids all over the globe, and we got into some of the wild details of his 40 years of experience in martial arts. Without further ado, my conversation with Black Belt, Eric Klinger. Eric Klinger. Yes, sir. Of California. Yes. Where do you live in California? I live in uh, Marina Del Rey, Los Angeles area. Is that, that's how you, it's like saying you're from Chicago. That could mean like dozens of, of cities and like six Pretty much. Probably. It's, yeah. you drive anywhere in LA and uh, the next thing you know, you're pretty much somewhere else, but it's still <laughs> considered LA, so... That big of a metro area, that's pretty much how that always goes. Pretty huge. 
You're a black me. belt in jujitsu? Black belt, yes. Three stripes? How many did Th- I see there? Uh, three stripes, third three degree, stripes. yes. How long have you yes. been at it? So uh, jujitsu, definitely 20 years, martial arts, uh, over 40. So you're not just a jujitsu guy? No, I have black belts in um, several things, karate, a lot of karate diff- styles and weapon styles. And cool. then I made the shift to grappling, MMA, jujitsu uh, 20 plus years ago. Why? Well, I got uh, choked unconscious in an underground uh, ring in Japan. And uh, when I got choked unconscious, I just, I was really upset. I had wrestled for six years. I had done striking for almost 20 years. And uh, I was looking at that guy and not believing when I woke up that I had gone out. <laughs> so I said, I got to learn this. So you could grapple and you can strike, kick and punch what the hell just happened kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you're looking up, you're in some spandex, you're in a foreign country, everybody's speaking a foreign language, and uh, you really don't believe what just what they're saying, but it was true. I went out. Tell me what underground ring in Japan means. So this was the... <laughs> um, it was the Mugen uh, League, which was the Amateur Pancrase League in Okinawa, Japan, and it was sponsored by the Yakuza, which is, I'm not sure if you're familiar, <laughs> the Japanese Mafia. Oh, boy. And so the number two boss uh, of Okinawa was really into, he was really, really into mixed martial arts. So he liked to have uh, Japanese people fighting each other. But more than that, he liked to see Americans get choked unconscious by <laughs> Japanese folk. You can appreciate the sentiment, right? Appreciate it nowadays. I wasn't laughing on that day. Na- naturally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what uh, what level of, like wrestling did you get to? Were you a high school wrestler? Is that was that what you mean? Exactly. So I was I was junior high school, high school. That's kind of where the six years came into play. Yeah, yep, sure. Uh, probably on on my way to something decent, uh, except for I just loved uh, to do bad things when I was in high school, and I guess even junior high school. It's kind of on the wrong track. Sure. And sure. Uh, and that kept me away from too many practices and and getting the weight cuts uh, perfect. So I did okay, made it to CIF, some different sectional stuff, and, and did well there. Uh, but then by junior and senior year, I realized um, uh, the singlet wasn't doing it for me. The, the <laughs> school wasn't, uh, you know, the top wrestling school. So I think I, I was a little bit more into um, figuring out my way, and that kind of brought me into more of the karate scene, martial arts, teaching. I, I began to start teaching uh, at Stanford University and, and I thought that was very cool. I'm, you know, making money. And so when I was making money teaching, I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. So you stumbled into discipline out of necessity a little bit. Pretty much necessity. I mean, when you, this was uh, a long time ago, uh, way before you were born. <laughs> and I was 16 years old and I was making $30 per student uh, for my karate teaching. And I had like, let's see here, 20, almost 20 students. So it was 600 bucks. I thought I was rich. Yeah. I said, man, forget wrestling. Let's, let's keep on this track. Did you get into fights? Uh, we used to do set up fights uh, between me and my friends, some of them doing Muay Thai, some of them uh, wrestlers, some of them boxers, me karate. We go at it on the lawn. So that kind of kept everybody a little bit away from me in, in high school. But <laughs> once in a while, we'd, we'd get into um, some bad scuffles. Uh, in those days, it wasn't so much one-on-one. It was a little more kind of 
almost like a gang style. So <laughs> we would get into some bad stuff that would uh, was fun and interesting. A couple challenges from some. Uh, I guess I guess there were some challenges, one on one challenges here and there at at some bigger parties where there was you know everybody's drinking a little too much and and <laughs> let's check out this karate black belt stuff and. Uh, luckily I made out on the better end of the stick in, in those cases. seems like arm wrestling is a better choice for those scenarios. You want to fight? 100%. Yeah, let's, let's just arm wrestle. 100%. <laughs> Get knocked out. Especially when uh, a girl's staring at you and the guy doesn't like that that's happening. Mm. Better to arm wrestle than to take a right yeah. cross to the chin. Definitely, definitely. Less, less uh, risk of death, for yes. sure. Yes. So how long have you been a black belt in jiu-jitsu? Been a black belt since 2010. 2010. So that would be 21. We're 11. Depends on how you count 2020. Yeah, it depends on how you. <laughs> it's a, it's a <laughs> wild card year. 2021. Yeah, yeah. Do you even count last year? Yeah. Yeah. 11-ish uh, years. Yeah. Who, 12 almost. With like lineage, are you under? Who you're? What's the? So I went. I moved to Brazil early on, right after Japan. Actually, I lived in Japan for around three years doing the MMA. That's where I, I transitioned from the karate into MMA. And then, uh, and then I moved from Brazil to, uh, sorry, from Japan to Brazil, and I was there studying under under the High and Gracie team in Sao Paulo, one of the top heavyweights really of all time, Fabio Leopoldo, and uh, and I was the first American black belt under Professor Fabio. That seems like a sentence we shouldn't glaze over. <laughs> it was it was one of my goals. So back in the day, people were moving to Brazil here and there to train. Yeah. Um, but but I always loved uh, really going to a place to study. Uh, why do I say study instead of train? When I went to Japan, it was to study their martial arts, to study the way they do MMA, to study the difference. So of course you know about their, their leg locks are insane. So I was there to study their leg locks. When I went to Brazil. I noticed that a lot of people were going to Rio, to Rio de Janeiro, but the top black belts in those days, uh, around 2003, 2004, 2005, were all in Sao Paulo. So I moved to Sao Paulo, uh, not speaking Portuguese at that point, and, uh, and I wanted to study why are they coming to Japan and beating up all, the, all my idols? And they're all from Sao Paulo. Like, what's, is it something in the beans? Is it like something they're eating? Is it because the girls are beautiful? Like, why are they able to do things that I thought were impossible to all my idols and guys that I trained, professional fighters in Japan that I would train with, would get beaten up by a, someone from Sao Paulo? So, uh, so yeah, so I started there and, and I just said, you know what? I am going to come out of here as, as a black belt. I started as a white belt. And, I, and I re, it was really important to me to do it with people that I uh, admired and, and enjoyed their style and the way they, they fought and trained and taught. So, so, yeah, not to be glazed over it was important to me for yeah, sure. Definitely. Appreciate that. And it wasn't just sort of like, well, let me go try this over here. It was literally motivated by seeing what you were doing in Japan get a little dominated by these guys from over there. It, so it, you said, I'm going to go check that out now. Exactly. I mean, I was blown away when I would go out with my friends in Japan to a bar to watch Pride and I'd see somebody that I was just training with or that I that I or somebody that I knew was incredible and um, and they would get beaten by somebody and uh, to to this point you know let's say uh, Professor Fabio he was fighting in Pancras and you know beating guys and then I would see another Brazilian come out and beating guys in deep or in pride or all of those old school MMA fights that we could watch on TV in Japan 
And it, it just blew my mind because I was training seven days a week in Japan. I was training three, four, five, six hours a day, depending what day of the week and what was going on on the mat. And if the mafia dudes would keep the doors open for us. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was how did, were they doing that? And, and I, I feel I discovered some things that I haven't heard talk about, talked about a lot. Um, in both countries, and and that really changed my perspective on martial arts. And did I hear you right? The entirety of your jiu-jitsu from white to black belt was in Brazil? Most of uh, my white to black belt was in Brazil. At brown belt, I came back to the States, started opening uh, some schools, uh, with Professor Fabio, by the way, and so, so, so like technically, affiliated schools, forgive me. Uh, we, we opened, we partnered together and, and yeah. opened uh, okay, okay. schools spawning off the school that he had in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And then later, what we did was uh, we opened four schools together in the Ventura County area in California. So, uh, and then we, and then we rebought his old school in Sao Paulo. So I would fly back and forth to Sao Paulo teaching the old guys that used to teach me. Which is cool. Which was so cool because yeah. I'm going back there speaking fluent Portuguese and um, and uh, and teaching guys that I was looking up to that were teaching me or training with them, let's say, and showing them how to run the business. And also, you know, we're training together and beating each other up. But we did it as white belts before. It was, it was amazing. And that is sort of the ultimate jujitsu thing. Like it's evolved so much that it comes back around. And now I need you to show me some things. Exactly. I like that. Exactly. Yeah. You went back and purchased his original gym, like he had sold it and moved on? Exactly. He sold it and moved on. And we were developing a type of jiu-jitsu in California where uh, it, was, it was friendly for kids as young as two and three years old. And then we'd have uh, students as old as 60 and 70 years old. So it may or may not be common nowadays, but for sure 20 plus years ago, I don't know about 20, but yeah, 15 years ago, sure. it, it wasn't that common. I mean, you, you had kids on the mat or you had adults on the mat, but really to have accepting schools that was, let's say, four of them in an area and they're all similar and they're all friendly and there's all, you know, great competitors, but also two-year-olds on the mat. It, it just was a interesting um, dynamic. And, uh, and so, so, uh, so then... The Brazil school obviously was still old school. Nobody wearing a rash guard. Nobody, you know, nobody take. They're taking off. You know, they're swearing on the mat. Mm -hmm. You know, and and very hard to have women or children there. And uh, so we said, listen, we're gonna we're gonna purchase a part of the school. We're gonna fly out every six months, retrain the staff, retrain the system, and they went from 80 students now to over 300 students. Uh, really due to the system for sure. And in, on top of that, the guys who train there nowadays are, if you look online at the moment, currently as of today, uh, Bushesha, Leandro Lowe, and all of the top heavyweights under their class that they're friends with train over there from Brotherhood and other places train at, at that academy. And then now all of these tough girls that are black belts are training over there. So I don't want to name a lot of names other than the two that I just mentioned. But um, it kind of stems from the first black belt over there, uh, which is uh, Ale Mestrinho. Uh, and so his, uh, his nickname is Mestrinho. And he's basically the, the coach of Leandro Lowe right now, which is attracting all of Sao Paulo to come to the school and train with them. And also it's helping them to grow. So super proud of everything we started together. Still friends with all of those guys. Um, they're amazing. 
the you know everything that happened there is is pretty legendary because um, even high and gracie i was i was there uh the day he I mean, this is a terrible thing. The mm -hmm. day that he passed, we were all going to go to a, a barbecue with him. Mm -hmm. So Master Hyen, Professor Fabio, all of these legends were um, just grew that school and the schools in Sao Paulo into a very uh, interesting, great legacy. You have schools now. Are right. they different than those original four that you started? Where, right. where are we at now? Yeah, so that's, that's a good point. In jiu-jitsu, as you know and as we know, it's one of the fortunate and unfortunate things about jiu-jitsu is a lot of times we split uh, and, and we move on from different uh, organizations, people that we were a part of. And unfortunately, uh, definitely I took a split from the partnership. Um, extreme respect and the utmost admiration for that partnership and, and those people. But when I moved on, it was for... for more for professional reasons and, and some things that I really needed to accomplish in my life. And so that's when I created uh, the Level Up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Schools. And from Level Up, we uh, opened uh, four schools in L.A. And a, and a fifth one in Houston, Texas. So there was five in five years. We opened, uh, we have nine affiliates in Brazil and two in Guatemala and three uh, four now in Spain. Jeez. It's quite the empire. I don't know about that, but it, it definitely was uh, exciting for me because it was a little bit of proof. The day that I moved, the day that I moved on, I, I, uh, I moved on and I started driving Uber and mm -hmm. I started driving Lyft. And a lot of people don't know that about me. I know a lot of people in the community and, and they have a, maybe certain opinions uh, about what happened or what didn't happen. But I did that because I wanted to start from scratch. Yeah. And I wanted to, uh, to really uh, make sure that I, I proved to myself that what I was teaching, what I was believing in, mm -hmm. had some value to someone. And so once those schools opened, as I said, uh, the four in LA, the fifth in Houston, Texas, the ones in, in Europe and in South America, Nowadays, I can see, okay, there was some validity to what I believed in. Yeah, the system makes sense, and the principles make sense. Yes. I can dig it. You ever have to fight anybody driving Uber? Oh, man, those were some fun days, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was one guy, he was, uh, I was pretty blown away because I, I was, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I just thought, oh, I'll start meeting people, giving them business cards for before my school starts up, right? Oh, it's a fair point. Yeah, you're talking to people all day long, right? Right. I was like, man, let's get some jujitsu students. But one dude, I gave him the card and, you know, we started on the thing and he goes, yeah, that's cool. And he was kind of quiet. And I was like, and we started doing all these stops. More stops, more stops, more stops. Bad neighborhood after bad neighborhood. So I noticed after a while, <laughs> he was he was running the show some some sort of uh, uh, drug dealing that yep. he was doing outside the back of my my <laughs> Prius. <laughs> you were the mule, man. Yeah, I was pretty bummed that he still had my card <laughs> in right, case yeah. anything went wrong. Mm -hmm, I had, he already mm -hmm. knew my name, uh, but yeah, I got out of that and we were good. <laughs> we were good. Yeah. I've considered doing that. That's why I'm kind of laughing. Uh, about uh, doing, drug dealing? No, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that, I'm full bought in there, but I was okay. considering doing uh, some Uber a couple of years ago. And the more and more I learn about it and some of the realities, it's like, yeah, 
Yeah, I would I would stay away from it if it's at all possible. It definitely was a good catalyst to get me uh, back into the school. It was some crazy days, you know, early mornings. Mm-hmm. I was living in another city, so I was driving 45 minutes just to get to the city to Uber in the morning, then to teach intro classes, then to teach all the classes, then watch my uh, bulldog uh, pee all over the intro uh, guy's foot, <laughs> and, and then nobody to help clean it up and yeah. continue teaching. So crazy days. Not as crazy as... Uh, as the Japan or Brazil, I would say. Different kind of crazy. But a different kind yeah. of crazy, yeah. <laughs> Much more mature crazy. You still kind of the head instructor, or who, so, who do you got? What? So one of the principles that I that I try to live by mm-hmm. is I don't like to call myself the head instructor. Okay. Uh, I think it's really important. If you walk into a level up school, you don't see photos of anybody on the wall except for masters who passed. That's one of uh, our rules and our ethos. Because if I have you or someone else come in there, become the instructor who's going to teach, who's going to care about the students, but now your face is on the wall. Do I take off my face? Do I put on somebody else? How many faces do we put on? Do we put on your brother-in-law? Do we put on, like, how do you decide? So I wanted something really systematic that was, was well thought out. And my personal opinion the masters that were going to be put on the wall were someone that one who had contributed something very important to Brazilian jiu-jitsu or grappling. They must there must be something that we can pinpoint that they contributed. And then two was that they passed. Sure. And a lot of people don't agree with me about that, but it's been incredible for creating a really wonderful environment. A lot, lot less people bothering me about uh, what's your lineage because you know, now it's different. I train. I have private lessons with Master Joe Marrera. Guy's amazing. He's unbelievable. I, I got some stripes from uh, him and from Grandmaster Mansoor, who trained with Elio Gracie for uh, 60, 70 years. He's like the most amazing person I've ever met. He's a red belt. Do I put his face? You know, so... I, I think it's very important that, that you really are caring about that. So in this case, out in L.A., we have some incredible instructors. Professor Talita Noguera, she's a um, umpteen-time world jiu-jitsu champion. Uh, you know, in my mind, she's the head instructor. But her, her husband, Professor Hobson Hazenji, he uh, used to teach in shootbox. He used to teach in uh, – he's a black belt under Damian Maya. He's an incredible black belt. In my mind, he's the head instructor, you know. Then I have uh, other black belts that are coming out from Brazil. One of the top uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors is just beating out up and coming, so watch out for him. I've known him since he was about 13 years old, and he's um, wiping the floor with a lot of black belts uh, out in Brazil right now, Professor Felipe Makoto, Ono de Souza. He's killing it. He's coming out here. In my mind, he's the head instructor. Um, I just brought out some another brown belt champion, and she's going to uh, get her black belt one day soon. So I don't want to keep myself ahead of anybody who's on the mat. I feel like we're all a board of directors. I feel like we're all a part of the same group. I feel like we're all a part of the same family, all part of the same team. So it's really important to me to give them the accolades that they, they're due, the respect that they're due. So I try not to use that. I used to, the way I started that was uh, I was on Santa Monica Boulevard, and I remember it was a dream of mine to put uh, my first jiu-jitsu school on Santa Monica Boulevard because I look up to Master Hicks and Gracie when I was a kid. He had a, a school on Santa Monica Boulevard. So my dream was to have a business card that had no title. So when people would come and say, who's the head instructor? I would say, well, t- tonight it's me. I like that a lot. Tomorrow actually. might be you. <laughs> yeah, your head instructor is the person who sat in front of you Just in class in that of night. I like t- that. I've taken many a class from different people at my own schools. Mm-hmm. 
And it seems like that the like the no pictures just taking one piece of it. The no pictures on the wall, the no designated top guy is another layer of protection from some of that old school cultish traditional martial arts problems that continue to linger too. It's a great point. I noticed that uh, some of my friends they're gonna kill me if they hear this, but they've got like nine different patches on their back because uh, it's Professor John Smith, Professor uh, Michael Smith, Professor Joe Smith, and then Professor, uh, you know, and I'm like, okay, so. It's a lot how, of Mormons in yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> how are we going to remember the people behind yeah. us? Are we just going to keep their, because what if you lose their patch and then now you don't have their name on it? So for me, level up, we, don't, we may or may not put other patches. I always like to represent yeah. my friends and family, but at least I know that, Nobody has to put my name on it. Let's just be a part of the same group. It lets it be jujitsu. Say it again. It lets it be jujitsu. It lets it be. It's all jujitsu. Like, and and why it it seems like the spirit of jujitsu would be why wouldn't I want to go spend time learning from this quote unquote grandmaster and then that one and then that one and okay it muddies the waters of my lineage but there again we're setting aside some of that cultish tendencies that we all tend to have exactly and i started to feel bad i was like man i want to put my my other professor from brazil his patch on my back i want to put my other friend who was teaching me for like six months while my professor was out of town i want to put his patch on my back so then i was like you know what my dream is to create something that will include everyone and and so when i designed the logo that's what it was about uh the backwards l signifies uh, doing things different the V on top of the belt uh, signifies the V is você in Portuguese or you. So it's like shaped like a U and it means you above your level every single day. You try to be a little more than what you are. So the belt is not really your jujitsu level. It's your level in life. It's your level with your family. It's your level at work. It's your level as a friend. And if you always try to bring você, which is you, a little bit above your, your own level, your own belt level, so to speak, in life, you're going to be better, right? And that's kind of where we came up with the the logo. I dig that. I dig that a lot. Because it's not just how good am I at triangle chokes. It's how good am I doing at developing myself. Exactly. Through jujitsu, maybe, but just in general. Exactly. Because at any time, we may have to take a break because of a huge injury or, or, God forbid, a sickness. But if you keep mm-hmm. developing yourself, jujitsu is always with you and you can always jump back on the mat. I mean, I've been on the mat, as you, I'm sure, with 70 and 80-year-olds. And I'm like, wow, look what they're doing for themselves, right? It's not about if I can get a key lock on them or a, or a, or a foot lock on them. It's about, oh, my gosh, I want to be like that when I'm that age. And that's what jujitsu is about, I believe. Yeah, we got one guy around here, Dick Katasik. Wow. I don't know if Great you – yeah, he uh, he's – Probably the first guy I had in mind when I started this podcast. Wow. Because, I mean, he's 80, 81, like the years there, right? And I've rolled with him a handful of times. And if nothing else, you're maintaining good base into your 80s because I can't can't seem to tip him over. And I'm a big, strong guy. I know a little bit of jujitsu, but his base is just solid, you know? Plus, he's moving and breathing heavy and feeling good every time he comes in. It is really inspiring, you know? That's incredible. Seems like a metaphor for life when we get that age, right? Mm-hmm. Have a good base overall. Right. Yeah. Keep yeah. your keep your base. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Hit it. me with some Portuguese, will you? Vou, vou. Que que você What do you want to yeah, hear? I hope that's appropriate. <laughs> oh man. Well, I've got some other stuff for you. Yeah. That was when I um, when I first arrived in Brazil. I didn't speak any Portuguese. Yeah, you said that. And so uh, jujitsu taught you a language. 
it ta- uh, you meant to say the girls taught me a language. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair point. <laughs> Jiu-jitsu taught me the wrong language yeah, and yeah. it got me in so much trouble. I um It's for- like my Spanish. I've picked up Spanish from buddies of mine that work at like custodians at the gyms where I've worked, you know, exactly. and, and I, I get to know them really well, but it's like learning from the line cooks, you know, you yeah. don't you don't know don't know the most polite version of Spanish. It can get you in big right. trouble. <laughs> so it it definitely got me in big trouble. My first 4 months I was in Brazil. Really, really bad Portuguese. You know, basically could say, hi, how are you? And this, uh, I was I was teaching English during the mornings in order to uh, pay for my jiu-jitsu classes at right. night. I was yeah. paying for jiu-jitsu and to pay for my rent. I was, li- I was living in a really bad neighborhood, uh, basically uh, next to a favela, a slum. And uh, so in order to pay for those, I was doing the English classes in the morning. And, uh, and the, the secretary put me in for this dating show on MTV in Brazil. <laughs> So what happened was I go, I told her, they picked me and it's like out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I said, uh, it was actually my favorite show, but I never understood what they were talking about. I just saw, you know, beautiful girls yeah, and they'd, yeah. they'd kiss the guy at the end. Yep, and yep. there was this supermodel who was hosting it. Right, right. And the secretary says to me, she goes, no, you're going to be great. They're going to love you. I was like, man, I don't speak Portuguese. MTV calls me up and they go, you're perfect. We want, we want somebody who barely speaks. Sure. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I go on with my friends. And a long t- story short, I only knew how to say one, one phrase, really. And the, and the phrase was puta que pariu. Yeah. And puta que pariu is bad. Yeah. I know a little Spanish and there's some adjacent uh, lingo. So, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, it's yeah. basically son of a, you know. Yeah. yeah. Right? Son of a gun. So it's, I'm, I'm on the show. And I'm getting ready to go on live. And the, the supermodel, she comes in the back and she's going to interview me. And she goes, so what do you think of being on the show? We're about to go on in about seven minutes here. And uh, we're excited to have you. How do you feel? And I go, puta, que pariu. I feel really good. And she goes, oh, no, you can't say that on here. Please. That's all I got, though, right? Yeah. So she puts me in for another three minutes. She said, listen, stay in here and decide what you're going to say on the show. So I'm looking at my friend. He's looking at me. I said, man, that's the only thing I know. And he goes, no, you know other stuff. Just think about it. And I go, oh, Muito bom. And muito bom means very good. Mm-hmm. So she comes back in. She says, okay, what would you think? And I said, well, what about muito bom? And she said, anytime you think puta que pariu, you say muito bom. <laughs> so, man, we're on there for an hour on this dating show. Uh-huh. And I'm just, all I could say in Portuguese was muito bom. So all of a sudden, the audience is yelling, muito bom, muito bom. Right. That's how you get a nickname right there. Nickname. Mm-hmm. Like, I had my, my four years of fame. So any bus I would ride. Any freaking nightclub I would go to, you'd have girls go, muito bom. I get in out of the line. Some guys, you know, bringing me the VIP, asking me to hang out with his sister, free drinks in the VIP. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was an amazing four years. By the way, mm-hmm. um, I should say three and a half before, you know, I got more serious when I met my uh, ex. <laughs> yeah, put a pin on that yes. in the timeline yeah, I shouldn't here. Say yeah. four. <laughs> so, you, I mean, did the, the learning Portuguese correlate to the timing of jiu-jitsu like by the time you're a black belt you kind of had the hang of it type i of would deal? say by the time i was uh uh blue and purple so by the time i was purple so a few years in the portuguese was really really well down i spent a lot of time uh on it i spent mm-hmm. a lot of time on the mat so same in japan when i was on the mat for so long you just you just start pick honing in on it picking up you can see when people are talking behind your back and you're like oh that's bad yeah i know what that is so, yeah, I definitely by my third year, I felt really comfortable. And by the fourth and fifth, it, it was uh, fluent. I would assume 
the the jujitsu got better because the language got better. Like you know, your, your understanding instruction I more clearly. I definitely think so. I, yeah. I think the whole culture of jujitsu and part of the language, the food, the way Brazilians are is extremely helpful for the jujitsu part of it. Um, so I, w- I would highly recommend when people can to go to Brazil at least for a visit to train there and uh, and and pick up on that culture. The great thing though nowadays, for example, here where we're at uh, in Minnesota and and even you know throughout the country is you still have the flavor of Brazil on the mat. Even the Americans, we all it's there's this adoption of the culture. So even without the language, you feel it the the camaraderie, the care. And that, that comes out in the language for sure. Nice. Spit some Japanese at me too. <laughs> Even after mastery, the first thing you always think of is the bad words, right? Oh, man. You, yeah. When you hear what I just said, <laughs> no. I said, what do you want me to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Japanese is really bad now, but it was great sure. then. Yeah. What, what does uh, bushesha mean? Bushesha is uh, cheeks, I believe. Yeah, cheeks? Like cheeks, yeah. So he was a pudgy kid and I got the so, nickname. Yeah, it's like I'm a buddy of mine mistaken. called Gordo, but he's like a oh, bodybuilder, yeah. but he was like a chunky kid. Hilarious, yeah. right? Had friends yeah. named Bubblegum and stuff. And yeah. They would chew bubblegum. And, and this is a hilarious one. I was, uh, I, didn't, I couldn't believe this, but guys would roll on the mat, and you know, my Japanese friends, and they'd start calling him sushi. And I'm like, well, man, you guys are <laughs> ruthless. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, one thing about Brazil that's nice is the whole uh, cultural differences, color, uh, uh, weight, you know, being skinny or big or black or white is, is, is not seen as a bad thing. Uh, when you're on the mat, when you're with your Brazilian friends, they'll just straight up call you, hey, fatty, or hey, skinny, yeah. hey, bones, yeah. you know, and, and so everything is, is much more out in the open. You just are who you are. You just are who you are, and, yeah. and it's very nice. I like that a lot. It's very nice. I'm probably known as a guy that rips on people. I give a lot of shit because I think of it the same way. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm a big, hairy, ugly dude. All right, That's cool. Hilarious. Call me big, hairy, ugly. I don't care. You know, <laughs> at least I know who you're talking to. You know, keep it real. That's awesome. What's the last movie you watched? Uh, last movie I watched, some terrible horror film with my girlfriend. <laughs> I should not say that if she's listening. She loves... Uh, really bad uh, horror movies same me too yeah so yeah. i mean uh i i think it was quiet place something sure Qui- yeah. a quiet place yeah a quiet yeah. place yeah it's a good that, one there's well, some bad ones and those are good too but this it is got very one. quiet as i fell asleep during the <laughs> hey define good however you want help you nap you know i think i think it's great because uh you get a little scared and you cuddle up and it, it's awesome yeah. so I, I i have to say it was good with the right people everything is an okay time Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yes. What's her name? Her name is Nadia. Okay. Yeah. I'll She's amazing. edit that in to make sure that it sounds her, like you Her actual name is Nadezhda. Nadezhda? Nadezhda, which means hope in Bulgarian. In Bulgarian. In Bulgarian. So yeah. you speak some Bulgarian? You know what? I'm working on it because yeah. I'm uh, going to go out and uh, visit and meet her dad this uh, New Year, so December. So what are you going to say to her dad in Bulgarian? Oh, man. No yeah. pressure. Uh Tvoyat Moyat Nadezhda. That was bad. I said <laughs> You probably cursed and didn't realize it. I right? said your Nadia is mine. Mm. <laughs> no. It sounds like a threat. You might want to polish. Oh, no, that he's up. tough. I I'm oh, I gotta figure this out. Yeah. That definitely was a threat. <laughs> Do some more studying. Yeah. And you, you 
I'm glad I'm I'm in my more mature days. I'm 45 now, so mm-hmm. I'm not in those uh, uh, rough and tumble days of the younger days. So I, I, I can throw out a couple jokes and people say, ah, the old guy's just joking around and it's not a big deal. <laughs> you know? It's the same joke you would have made. You just get a pass because there's some, a, some gray in the beard. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Uh, what, what are you doing here in Minnesota? What were we doing? So this this has been an incredible day so far. I'm very excited. We did a uh, jiu-jitsu seminar over here with Professor Jared, Professor Henan, Vital, Professor Ishmael here at M Theory Martial Arts. Awesome school, amazing people, tough, tough uh, jiu-jitsu people. And uh, we're raising money for IJEF. IJF is the International Jiu-Jitsu Education Fund. Uh, it's an incredible non-for-profit uh, I had the honor of starting like five, six years ago. We're in eight countries now, I think. Uh, I always say I think because we're building more and more. We're looking at some different countries right now I'll mention. We're in uh, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Brazil, Philippines, India, Cambodia, and the U.S. We are currently looking at a project starting in Laos and, uh, and also in talks with Africa. So Helping what? kids uh, yep. to get uniforms for free helping them to get mats and helping to support their instructors every month financially. Why? To keep those coaches, instructors, being able to teach the kids and not being stuck working on a farm all day or, or, or working in a grocery store where they wouldn't be able to provide jujitsu and life skills for the children. The children themselves don't have this opportunity in those underprivileged uh, towns, cities, countries in order to get jujitsu, which we have, or to have mats or uniforms. So by them getting that, a lot of them are able to stay away from gangs, a lot lot of uh, early pregnancies, drugs. And so it's been an awesome, awesome thing. We do mission trips every year. Uh, We we go to all those countries I just mentioned. And and it's it's real special. You see people, you know, moms, dads crying. You see uh, kids, they don't really cry. They're just really, really happy. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you see big black belts on the mat who've flown out from Brazil or the U.S. also crying. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's one of my fun parts is seeing when, I can, seeing when people finally tear up. and you know. see, Seeing the impact of impact. It's incredible. Right? You're having this impact and then you get to see it culminate a little bit. It's so cool, yeah. Who'd you start that with? I heard you at the start of the seminar describe I, who you started it with. Yeah, yeah, it was me, me and my bulldog. Me and your bulldog, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I looked at her, and I was like, man, we got to go out and help these guys. So what happened was I had a student. Um, he had been training with me in Ventura. He had been helping me teach kids. And his grandfather, his father, sorry, his father, no, no, his grandfather was very sick in uh, Guatemala. So he went back, and he couldn't get back into the country. He had been there, uh, by the way, Another subject, paying mm-hmm. taxes, great kid, uh, working his butt off, trying to get his citizenship here, just didn't get it on time, right? So he's not, he's not, just couldn't. So by the time he wanted to come back, they would say, no, you, you can't come back. So he's stuck in Guatemala, and we connected, and he said, Professor, hey, can you help me with this? And, and I was like, yeah, I can help you with this. It was something else, medical stuff for his family. He said, how come you're not teaching kids jujitsu out there? And he said, oh, Professor, I... I don't know. I, d- I don't have any support. I didn't think what to do. I said, man, you were out here with me like seven years. You know, you got your certifi- certificate in teaching kids. You had your uh, purple belt or I, I, maybe back then it was a blue belt. And uh, I said, man, you need, you need to teach the kids in your village. And he said, okay, professor, I will. And I said, great, let's do it. This, like, this is really important. You're going to help the kids in your village. When I got the pictures back from him, they were training on a concrete floor 
no freaking, uh, uh, obviously no jiu-jitsu uniforms, but really, you know, kind of scraping up their knees on the floor, learning this stuff. And I just, I, I couldn't believe what was going on. I said, you know what, we got to figure this out. So I started boxing up old uniforms that I got from um, people. And I went down to UPS and I went to go ship it. And it was like 790 bucks. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, this is not going to work. So I went to FedEx. It was like $845. Like, wait a second, it's not, let's try USPS. Oh, 625 I realized the ticket for me to fly down there was cheaper than me sending out the uniforms. <laughs> so now I realized I, I had to get down there. So I started recruiting some um, students. I recruited this uh, girl, this woman. She was a professional photographer. I recruited another guy and, an, and another girl who was an artist and then another guy. So we went down there and it turned out Coach Oswaldo was in this crazy village like through the mountains from the regular spot you would get to. So you'd have to drive another six hours through the hills in order to find his spot. That's why it was costing so much. So it, I mean, it wasn't over the overseas. It, it was the last X number of miles of the drive. That right. Was it was the, overseas and in the jungle. Yeah, let's say. Right. So, um, so that, that last part was what was making it so expensive. But then I realized they needed the most help. I mean, we got so much help in Guatemala. We got mats from a Gracie Baja. They donated. We did seminars in all these different schools that were, that were giving money to help with the geese. Um, we, we were helping us with transportation. What, by the time we made it up there, the taxi driver thought we were like, like, he thought we were masking a big drug deal. It probably made the most sense. Yeah, he he sees us in this yeah. car. He doesn't know what's going on. We got all these white uniforms. We got all these mats, you know, in the back hitting a head. This <laughs> tall blonde girl. This you know other girl is, does not look. You know, she looks totally American. And you know, all he's just like, okay, they're coming over here and they're gonna like do some El Chapo style smuggling right. and put it inside those white whatever those white uh, robes are. Yeah. When we get there, there's a village of kids waiting for us. It's like it's like eleven at night. Coach Oswaldo comes out of a hut. His mom, everybody's in traditional Guatemalan garb. The taxi driver just starts bawling. He just starts crying. All of the Americans start crying. Coach Oswaldo's mom's crying. You know, there's no, there's no older men. I don't know what happened to them, but we can imagine. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're gone. Um, but there's all these women and everybody's crying and it's just crazy. And then he makes this meal for us. And I'll remember the meal... The the ch he had chickens in the back, so his mom had taken one of the chickens, and but it was one chicken for like five Americans and the taxi driver, so we all got like a very small portion of chicken and some rice and beans, and I remember Coach Oswaldo was really embarrassed, and he said, "You know, if you're hungry, there's more, Professor." And I saw him kind of pushing his plate over, and I was like, "No, no, I'm so full. Oh my gosh, you know." And we all saw what was going on. That's all they had. And, uh, man, it was just like, it gives me chills to this day to think about it. But that's what IGF was all about. And that's kind of where, where the whole mission started. And I realized I was talking to the people that were there on that mission. And I said to them when we were on our way back on the flight, I said, we got to do this everywhere. We have got to do this throughout the world. This is going to change everything. You're going to have kids. I mean, if you could have that on every village corner, you wouldn't have gangs and violence. You wouldn't have drugs and violence. You wouldn't have early pregnancies. And and then and then everybody would, if they want, there was a battle between two cities or two countries. Man, you just put the two jujitsu guys at it. Mm -hmm. and, and we all know about respect here on the mat, so there wouldn't even really be 
battles you know yeah. so the, it's like the olympic idea right let's, yes. let's calm down and race each other for a while exactly i'm glad you told that it's sort of the genesis story i guess because it sort of adds a, a personal and emotional note to because like if i describe to someone what i know i jeff to be it's like well they we're helping kids get some jujitsu uniforms and and have somebody teach them and we live in where we live here that and we're like okay good yeah what you know what's what's the deal but like when there's a real human impact behind the story that really helps sell the reality of it. Well, I appreciate that. And just to, to fast forward so everybody knows who's mm -hmm. listening, um, even though we're in all those countries, Ecuador, El Salvador, Cambodia, India, Philippines, all those ones that I mentioned, Brazil. So we would go every year to all those countries. So each country had a different story by the time you got to five years. So as an example, just, just because you heard the Guatemala story. Mm -hmm. So in the fifth year, we're going out there. And, and I remember one of the girls, I have a picture of her when she was really young, like five years old, and she got her first uniform. Now she's got a different uniform. She's 10 years old, and she's been training the whole time, and now she's crying when we arrive there. And now Coach Oswaldo, <laughs> we flew Brazilian black belts out this time to be with him. Just one story, you know, as, the, as it moves on, because yep. each country is the same. He's out on the mat now proposing to his wife bringing a, 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 a his new wife and his mm -hmm. baby's being born she's pregnant yeah. and he's bringing a ring out there on the mat in front of all the kids the newspaper is there the police are all there because we're teaching the special police of his area and everybody's crying i got the two brazilian freaking champs from brazil out there and they're bawling their eyes out <laughs> so the the whole uh, uh trajectory of their village has changed because we we went there and and i feel that and and that story has been mimicked in all of those countries so uh i feel like we can do it i think uh people will do it after me people will do it after you and if they continue it they will change the world every into, I, this is something I've found in being like a, a strength coach and a powerlifting coach and a personal trainer. Everybody needs, a, I want to say like a fire lit under their rear end. You know, everybody needs a specific project that they can work on, but they also need a campfire, right. which is, you know, something that a community of people can can sit around and both be all be invested in that's right and that's what jujitsu is that's what name a sport or name a pursuit name an activity it's just another version of something we can all sort of crowd around and be together exactly. about i guess <laughs> right and, th and there's so much in jujitsu that uh, sometimes starts to divide people that it's so nice to have to your point, something that we can crowd around and just all be a part of. And that was the vision with iJeff, Professor Ishmael, Sue coming in and really taking it to the next level was the dream is, is every school, especially in the U.S., especially in Europe, especially in countries that have the capability of helping, should become a part of iJeff, should reach out to help should put the logo on their door, should care about the kids, should do a seminar every year to raise some money, raise three, four, five, six hundred bucks even. It helps so much. And, uh, and if all of the world did it, we'd be able to open more schools around the world. Did you talk to Sue yet today about how much money was raised today? 
I haven't got the the amount yet. When Ish was still instructing, I asked her, and she said twenty three hundred bucks. Wow, that's I'm incredible. sure it's more than that. I'm sure people you know donate on the way out. So about twenty five hundred bucks. That's so a couple hours of practice and some jujitsu. It's unbelievable. And then so twenty three, twenty five hundred bucks. Let's say from the jujitsu seminar tonight, we'll do the gala. I believe there's eight, nine, ten thousand dollars raised already. Right. So these are these are huge numbers. That now with that type of uh, funds. We can we can start expanding to those other countries already, um, and and sustain the countries we already have because we send support every month to the coaches to make sure that they're they're professional and that they're accepting kids for free. We don't want them to uh, to to have to start charging kids that can't afford it. So uh, it's pretty incredible. What or dispersing done. their own energy elsewhere because I've got to you know keep up these other jobs so that I can exactly. you know, sustain. Yeah, exactly. Do you, is most are most of the operations. Um, attached to existing gyms or is it sort of adjacent like you were sort of describing kind of off in a village somewhere where there was no immediate access well, well, that's I guess it's sort point. of like it's tough to access the gym that's in whatever city right. because of money or whatever but exactly. then this area doesn't even have them is it more of one or the other well it's a really good point so so far the best way that we've found to create the projects is to connect them with an existing school. So sometimes it's not exactly how we imagine a school. So, so uh, w- the one I was describing in Guatemala, for example, it's in a soccer field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the mats are out next to the soccer field and that's their school. So that was kind of created from nothing. Uh, that sounds actually pretty awesome. It's, it, it's beautiful you know, at night. It, yeah. We, we, you know, we, we have the gift of nice buildings and stuff for right. most of our schools, but at the same time, you're kind of cooped up inside. Oh, you know, yeah. Nice oh, to yeah. roll outside once it's in a while. It's incredible. It's incredible. Ecuador is like that. So um, most of them, to your point, are, are pretty much connected to a school okay. because what, when we tried to build it from fully from scratch, mm-hmm. the, maybe one day the funds will be there. So like, for example, we're talking to a couple different people in other countries, but then they don't have the they need to actually build from scratch. So we're hoping to get to that level where we could build things fully from scratch. But it is really nice too. Cause when you connect it to a school that's already there, now these kids are coming in and they're, and they have mentors. So there's other kids that were paying or there's other, or they had no kids program and there's adults that were paying. And so they're, now they have these mentors and they come in there and they're the IJF kids. So it's, it's very, very cool family building for them. I dig it. I, I'm really, really, uh, grateful to be around people like Professor Ishmael, Professor Hanan, met Professor Jared today, and all the black belts here, all the students. I'm grateful to be around jujitsu that's like this, tough jujitsu, but caring jujitsu. I feel a lot of care when I walk in, and I feel that that's partly because of the mission of something like iJeff. So Professor Ishmael always had that in his heart he used to talk to me about that all the time his wife being from cambodia and um, starting a project there if we can all be like that in jiu-jitsu schools people won't have the bad experience that you hear sometimes when you meet someone and they say oh yeah jiu-jitsu yeah i'm not too into that oh why aren't you too into that i had a bad experience i walked in and you know i got roughed up and you know my knee hurts and you know why can't we have a good experience their first day 
You know, we wouldn't do that to a kid from IJF. We wouldn't see a five-year-old roll in and say, all right, put him against the top, you know. No. <laughs> like, don't you want the kid to develop? Don't you want to be a good person? Well, same with, with adults. They're coming in here because they're having trouble at home with their wife. They're having trouble at home with their husband, having trouble at, at work with their boss. They're coming in here for an outlet to have a, an extended family. And if we can all do that and care about one another, we won't have the the worldwide issues that we have in general. So it's special for me. I'm really grateful to be a part of it and appreciate all you guys. My last question brings us back to the black belt thing. Anytime I do this with a black belt, the last question is what advice would you give to each belt level, including black? So start at white and they're deliberately putting you on the spot here, but start at white and work your way up. White, never give up on yourself. Blue, never give up on yourself. Purple, never give up on yourself. Brown, never give up on yourself. Black, never give up on your future. And uh, it may sound cliche. You might have had other people say that. I'm not sure. Um, but the reason why I say that is because in each belt level, depending on the person, you go through different issues that it wouldn't be fair for me to put um, a, a kind of a cookie cutter uh, spot on each belt, I believe, for me. I believe that because of that, it would be better for me to say what I just said, which is if you don't give up on yourself in each belt, you have something you're going to see around the corner that you could not imagine. I can't imagine it for you if you're listening. You can't imagine it for yourself. You'll only know it when you get there. And when you get to black belt, the reason why it might be different than the other ones is because now it's not really just yourself that you're not giving up on. You've, you've kind of hit this point where, where it was, okay, you understand jujitsu, you understand the community, you understand the culture, but now if you continue, then you won't be giving up on your future. You'll be able to provide this for your kids. If you don't want to have kids, you'll be able to provide this for other people's kids. If you don't want to provide it for other people's kids, you can go on an IJF mission and provide it for kids around the world. So it's such an important aspect to always remember. I try to wake up every day knowing I'm so ignorant. I don't know what's about to happen. I don't know what I'm about to experience. I can't imagine what I'm going to learn. I can't imagine what type of impact I'm going to have. And as soon as I wake up and think that, everything's clearer. Because I remember back to each belt level and knowing, wait a second, when I wanted to quit in purple, I didn't know, man, all these other things happened at brown. When I wanted to quit when I was a blue, I didn't even know I was going to do this at purple. So, And then when, at brown, when you were thinking about you couldn't make it, you see black and you go, I'm just starting over again. Now I, I'm starting my future. So it's so, so important to just remember that you deserve that. You deserve what's around the corner for you. And if you don't give up on yourself, you'll see what you cannot see today. Do your best Ishmael Bentley impersonation. That's so good. It's just, it's just no. It's just too bad nobody <laughs> be able to see it. That's so good. You just uh, need a hooded sweatshirt inexplicably in the middle right. of the summer. Yeah, this and guy's that an been... amazing guy, and um, we trained together. I don't know if you know that history, but we trained together. Jeez, uh, I, I don't know if it's twelve, thirteen years ago. 
in Ventura a lot. Uh, he was out there for, I believe, for business. And uh, he was out there for like a year or two, I think. We, and we were training all the time. Just great human being, great jujitsu. So, yeah, before him, theory. It's very cool. Always mm-hmm. a great guy. Mm-hmm. Thanks, brother. I won't take Th- up many more of your minutes. Thank you so much. Thanks for all your support for iJeff. www.i-jeff.org. And uh, we accept donations. I shouldn't say we. iJeff accepts donations online. And even some people decided just to have a, a, a recurring donation every month, 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, And it just comes out every month, your credit card. And what happens is that's supporting kids around the world for what you believe in, which is, which is kids growing up with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Awesome. Appreciate you. Thanks, brother.